Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. And I'd like to do well tonight, because for me, it's something special. The only reason I accepted this date, I haven't been doing very much speaking for the last few years, as some of you know, except one talk I gave in Westport four or five months ago, and that started the whole thing. I got to know everybody around here, and I got busier in the bird dog. And I started going to meetings, and I've had a wonderful time ever since. I've been ill for nearly two years and haven't been to meetings of any kind. So it was a kind of special thrill to start going to AA meetings as my first venture back to the world of health and activity. It was also very thrilling to me to have the opportunity to go to many small meetings like this. I'm from New York, and the majority of AA meetings that I've attended in recent years are very large and deep. It's hard to find a small meeting. And if you can do if you do find one and you go away for two months and come back, it's not small anymore. They outgrow themselves very fast because they have been growing very fast, which is wonderful. But I have never, that's why I say I was moved to accept Helen's invitation, I've never celebrated an anniversary for a very simple reason. I had three slips in my first year and a half. And while only one of them was bad, and had I had to be hospitalized, and the other two I nipped in the bud by yelling for help quick, just the same, I wasn't quite certain what date I should pick. In my own mind, I was in AA from the moment that I attended that first meeting, and I never left it. Even though I did get drunk. <laughs> My heart never left AA, and I got back as soon as I could. It was hard going back, too, after that first one. You keep looking around and wondering, what is it they've got that that you lost that allowed this to happen? And I found in the end, but I don't recommend it as a way of learning, that I learned perhaps more about myself and my drinking and everything else about me through that slip than I had all the many months before, which I'd been in psychiatric treatment for over a year and I'd been going to AA regularly as soon as I found it. There was only one meeting a week in those days. And it was a very long time between Tuesdays. And I got concerned about that. 
even before I had the slip. We kind of lived on what we'd heard on Tuesday, and it began to peter out around Friday or Saturday, and then you had to live on your expectations of the next Tuesday and manage to stay sober, and not any of, not all of us were able to do that. So I started a group on Friday night where I was living at that time in Greenwich. And Greenwich was actually the second AA group in the East. New York was first. I guess Akron considered they were first, but we didn't because they didn't become AA right away. When, when I'd been a, in AA for about eight months, Bill and Lois and a couple who had a car, the only one among us who did, decided to go out and see what was happening in Cleveland, where a remarkable event had taken place. One of the Cleveland members had taken the 12 steps to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, their biggest newspaper, and persuaded them to run two steps every day on their editorial page with a little box underneath that if they wanted to know more about Alcoholics Anonymous or if they had a drinking problem to write such and such a box. And the mail came in like a six-inch blizzard. And there were only 12 of them. And they didn't know quite what to do about it. And uh, they telephoned us, and we were all very nervous about about how it might collapse and just go wrong in every conceivable way. And we decided we'd better go out and see. We'd better go out and take a look. So we went out, and the Cleveland group, at that time, had over a hundred people. And I remember very well standing out in front of that hundred people, as we all did who had come from New York, and telling them how wonderful it might be one day when there would be groups like that all over the country. And everywhere we went, we would have a meeting to go to or a group to go to, and everybody laughed. It was too ridiculous to believe. You know, that was real grandiosity. And and nobody took it seriously. Of course, that's exactly what happened, and much sooner than any of us thought it could. And it was exciting. I didn't mean to entirely skip my pre-AA life. I have to tell you just enough to know that I have a right to be here. I earned my way into AA in the usual manner. I think there may have been some differences. For one thing, although many of my AA friends had the same experience, I had an incredible capacity. I could outdrink anyone or any group of people. I never had a hangover. I never had rubber legs. I never fell down. I never had thick speech. And uh, I got away with it, in other words. I had what I today consider to be a an abnormal bodily reaction to alcohol. Right from the word go. Because I don't think that a normal body could have consumed that amount 
of a toxic substance as frequently as I did, as consistently as I did, and show no effects of it. I think that was abnormal. And so I think that actually I was an alcoholic right then. But it wasn't giving me any trouble. In fact, I had a wonderful time. I enjoyed every minute of it. I not only didn't get into any trouble, I was patted on the back and everybody thought it was wonderful. And uh, I'll give you just one example because I don't want this to go on endlessly. I had a beau who was a very eligible young man and older than I by some years. And he went around with a young married crowd. And they were known as very fast. That would date me if nothing else did. <laughs> and I was terribly pleased when he started dating me. And I started going out with this fast crowd. I liked them. They were my types. And boy, they drank plenty, all of them. But one night, at a big dinner party, the men were talking together after dinner, and they got into an argument as to whether I, or a girl named Virginia, I don't remember her last name, could drink more. And Virginia had her backers who said she could, and I had mine who said I could, and it got to the point where they decided it had to be decided by a contest because they were going to bet on it. Over $5,000 was bet on this contest. And one of the young couples had their family's home, which was an enormous house on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, where this took place, where I'm from. And it was, uh, they were away, they were in Europe, I think. So we had the house to ourselves. We kept the servants just long enough to prepare things and then got rid of them. And uh, in the what was the basement of the house was actually the servants' quarters, a big living room, and plenty of room. Well, that's where we set up the bar. The drink that was decided upon, oh, I must say that three men either volunteered or were tapped, I don't know which, as judges. Their job was to keep a close eye on Virginia and me and see that we didn't pour any of our drinks into the potted palms or out the window or that we didn't in any way uh, undercut the other one by pretending to have drunk more than we had. And they decided what the drink was to be. Now, I don't know if all of you know what these are, because I haven't heard the word in many years, but they were called French 75s. And if you remember Prohibition, gin was a safe drink because you could make it in the bathtub. So there was always gin available. And in this mansion that we were borrowing, there was a very good cellar and there was plenty of champagne, good champagne. So those were the drinks, and Virginia and I had to go to a certain place to get our drinks, 
So one of the judges was there and measured the drink and saw that we had the same amount of gin and the same amount of champagne in each drink that we took. And it was a lovely party. <laughs> the house had a dumb waiter in it, and I rode the dumb waiter up to the attic and down again. <laughs> there was one young man who played the piano, and he got tired of playing the piano, and he came down and he was spending too much time in the cellar. And uh, I, I grant you he wasn't a great big football player, but I picked him up, carried him upstairs, <laughs> and sat him at the piano and said, you stay there. And he did. So he played the rest of the night. <laughs> but we had a wonderful time. Everybody did. Gradually, the party became depleted. People began to leave and some of them didn't leave in body. They just left in spirit. <laughs> there were little humps around. <laughs> About three o'clock in the morning, the only ones left on their feet and looking perfectly as they did when they came were Virginia and me and the three judges. <laughs> <laughs> and the five of us went out and had a big breakfast. <laughs> so it was a draw and all bets had to be off and you know for many years I expected Virginia to appear when I was at a meeting somewhere and say remember <laughs> because I have any doubt whatever she was an alcoholic she had that same abnormal bodily reaction that I had she drank the way I did. She drank as much and as often as I did. And none of those things were normal drinking. I didn't know enough to know that then. Nor did anybody else. As for the word alcoholism, no one had ever heard of that. We knew there were drunks, but they lived down, New York called it the Bowery. It was West Madison Street, Chicago. And you didn't know those people. You never saw them. And nobody in, in your world uh, was a drunk. I used to hear whispers about somebody whom I called Uncle Gil. That Uncle Gil drank. And I used to wonder about that. Why did they whisper that? Why did they say that word in that voice? They drank. Everybody drank. What, what was it about Uncle Gil? Well, Uncle Gil drank. <laughs> and that's the way they used to speak of it. <laughs> they didn't use the proper words, and they didn't know what they were talking about at all. And I don't know whatever happened to Uncle Gil. He died young, and I suspect he died of his alcoholism. He's a very attractive man. But the change in my drinking occurred in, the, in its tenth year. I started drinking when I was 17, and the year that I was 27, everything changed. Not bang the whole lot at once, but piece by piece during the year. The first thing was, was a blackout. Was, I didn't know what that was. <clears throat> Uh, I'd had a fall, perfectly legitimate fall, that did not have to do with drinking, and hit my head on a banister, 
And I went to the doctor saying I thought I must have a concussion. And he said, you do. And just don't drink for a few days. It isn't a serious one. You'll be all right. Well, that was simple. I did drink for a few days. Even then, as at the very end, I could not drink at all for a certain period. Not too long a period, but for a certain period. I couldn't drink just a little bit. That was the difference. If I drank at all, it was all out. If I didn't drink at all, I could stay sober. And the only problem was I never knew when those sober times were coming or how long they were going to last. And it's very shaky. You feel very shaky. Uh, If you've had two or three days of good drinking and then all of a sudden it goes to pieces again when you didn't expect it. And I think it's that uncertainty that uh, makes an awful lot of alcoholics throw in the sponge and give up. It's hard to bear, but it's, it's one of the peculiar things that happens in us. The next thing that hit me was the hangover. And I've always said that we ought to have our own word for that because what we, what happens to us never happens to the, to the ordinary drinker. If they had a hangover like I had, they'd be, they'd have the ambulance and they'd be in the hospital with three doctors by, by the bedside. We wouldn't, of course. We wouldn't dare. We'd be afraid to call for help. I think that's what keeps a lot of people from help, even today. Even now that so much more is known than used to be known. And then there came all the small things that go with, with alcoholism. The things that you do and say in the blackout that you don't remember. The, the complete change of personality, which I must have shown in the beginning, but certainly not to the extent that it became, that it was later. And for, I used to hear a good deal about how I behaved when I was drunk last night, night before last. What I said and what I did. That is another thing that's extremely hard to bear, incidentally. I got to the point where I really couldn't bear myself anymore. I didn't like what was happening to me. I didn't like what it was doing to me. I didn't like the way it was making me look. I was with my sister. I'd come back from Europe because I was convinced I was insane. Absolutely convinced. I couldn't think of anything else that could have happened. I said something must have snapped in my brain that affected my drinking. So I started going. I was living in England. I started going to psychiatrists. Because that's where you go, something snaps in your brain. None of them would admit that I was sick or that I was insane. They all said I wasn't. They didn't tell me what I was. They didn't tell me what I could do about it. But they wouldn't touch me with a ten-foot pole. They wouldn't take me on as a patient. 
And when I finally decided that it was clear to me, at any rate, that one of them was going to lock me up for good, when they re- really recognized how bad it was, I thought I'd better come back to my own country. I'd been abroad seven years without ever coming back. And if I was going to be locked up forever, it better be on United States soil. For at least I did have family and some old friends. <coughs> and it wouldn't be quite so lonely, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what my imaginings were. They were frightful. It scared me to death. It was like a waking nightmare to think of what it was going to be like when I landed wherever I thought I was going to land. I knew nothing about mental hospitals. I didn't call them that. We called them loony bids, you know. What was the other favorite word about them? Well, there were all kinds of slang words about them, but the, the snake pit was the other one I was trying to remember. That was a very favorite phrase to describe a mental hospital. And that's all I knew about them. I'd never been inside one. But I had a very vivid imagination. And my imaginings of what they were like were not pretty. They wouldn't make anybody want to visit them inside them. So I knew that I was headed for that. I had no doubt of it. And I did think maybe they might be a little better over here than they would be in England. I don't even know why I thought that. But I don't know that I knew too much about what I was thinking anyway. I think that last five years of my drinking, from the year that in which it changed, it went a rapid spiral down. Steadily down. With no breaks, no stoppage, just down. For instance, when I got on the boat from home, I had decided that I wasn't going to drink on the boat. And I decided this, nobody else. And nobody else was going with me, so I wasn't doing it for anybody else. I just decided I wasn't going to drink. And then I'd be better able to get settled and get a job or whatever I had to do when I got back to the United States. So guess what? I never saw the Statue of Liberty I never saw the New York skyline. I didn't know we'd arrived. I was the last one off the boat and I was carried off. And my sister was waiting. She knew I was coming. They told her that. And that's what she got back. And so I moved in with her and she had a friend. And I had a dog and her friend had a little boy. We were all in two rooms, over the <coughs> And my drinking made it just beautiful for everybody. Because not only did I arrive in that state, I stayed in that state okay. as consistently as possible from then on. I couldn't stand, I don't know how you feel about it, but that three o'clock in the morning bit is what always got me. I'd either pass out or I'd go to sleep. And then I'd wake up wide awake at three o'clock 
fairly clear, clear enough to be able to see what was happening to me, to recognize that something terrible was happening to me, and there didn't seem to be anything I could do to stop it, at least nothing I knew about Don't you think it's curious that nobody, but nobody, ever suggested to me that if I stopped drinking altogether for good, that would do it? Nobody. I don't think most people knew that. I certainly didn't know it. I spent that five years beating myself, my head, against the stone wall, attempting the impossible. At least it's physically impossible for an alcoholic to resume controlled drinking. Once you've lost control, it's gone for good. I didn't know that. So I kept trying. And there were always these funny little episodes of where for two or three days it seemed to work. And then it would go to pieces again. So I had developed a Oh, I I might say just in passing that I tried suicide twice. And I had decided the third time was going to be it. I'm going to make any more mistakes. I came close the second time. I smashed myself up good the first time. Spent eight months in the hospital. And the second time I nearly made it, but I was going to have to do better because I, I didn't want any more of that kind of life. And I didn't see any choice. I didn't know there was any other for people like me. I finally had a gift. I was trying not to drink. I'm one of my rare going on the wagon experiments. And a friend of mine who was an alcoholic, incidentally, and practically every member of her family was also. And they were a very wealthy, very well-known family, and this was a very fine doctor they had. She asked if I would accept a Christmas present of a visit to their doctor. Because she was so impressed with the fact that I hadn't had a drink, I think, for two weeks or three weeks or something. And I said I would be delighted to, and I went to see it. And I fell in love with him right away. He was a marvelous man. He sat and talked to me for two hours as if he'd never had another patient. He was one of the busiest men in the country. And at the end of it, he said, you know, in my experience, people like you, that's all I was called for a long while, people like you, have one chance in a hundred. But you want to get well so badly that I'm going to take a chance that you're that one. And if you're willing to go into Bellevue Hospital, because I was broke, of course, I will put you in my neurological ward. You don't belong in the psychiatric ward. You're not insane. They think you are, but you're not. But I'll put you in my neurological ward and I'll see you several times a week and we'll see what we can work out. And I spent seven months 
in that neurological ward at Bellevue. And always I kept telling him that wasn't enough, because I didn't see him for long, a matter of ten minutes at a time, that I needed more, that I needed more treatment, that I needed more help than I was getting. And he said, well, don't you think now you're physically well again? Don't you think you can go out and make it? And I said, if everything went absolutely smoothly and perfect, nothing ever went wrong, maybe I'd make it. But if the first little thing went wrong, I said, I know where I'd go. I'd be right back where I was. Because I'd head for a drink as fast as I could. I didn't trust myself. I don't know how I knew these things. I just instinctively knew them. About me, anyway. So, he called me, came to see me one day, and he said, I found a young psychiatrist who's doing some research work here. And uh, he says that he'll see you an hour at a time whenever he has some spare time to give. He'll let you know if he'll send for you and you'll walk to the fifth floor. So I did. And for four or five months I saw this young man. And I convinced him that what I needed was what I had told my friend, the first doctor, Dr. Kennedy. What I really needed was long-term psychiatric treatment for whatever it was that was wrong. And he took that message back to my doctor, who, because of who he was and because of his position, was able to get me into a very good place in Greenwich. Beautiful place. 500 acres. Buildings scattered around. Really lovely. And I tell you, it was like going from hell to heaven to go from the neurological ward of Bellevue Hospital up to Blythewood, which was spectacularly beautiful. And I spent 15 months at Blythewood. And I had the medical director as my doctor. And many of you in this room know his name. His name was Harry Tebow. And much of the material that he has written is available to AA. And Harry himself was on our board of trustees until he died and was very close to AA. He was a remarkable man. He was a wonderful man. He kept giving me another chance. And I kept having lapses. That was not a lockup place. It was wide open. And I had freedom to go into New York to go to the dentist or spend the night with my sister or go to the theater whenever I could or wanted to. And uh, I'd do this seven or eight times and come back perfectly all right. And the next time I'd come back stoned. And then he and I would spend weeks trying to dig into why. We never could find out why. I don't think, I, there's, I've never known of anybody who found out why they got drunk. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's known or ever will be known. Maybe there are different reasons for different people and that's why, but whatever it is, I never found out. Finally he told me, this was after almost a year, 
that he'd given it all he had, and he said, you have cooperated wonderfully. I think you've given it all you've got. And I don't think there's any more I can do for you, and we just can't keep you here indefinitely. So if this happens again, you'll have to go. Well, I had nowhere to go. You would think any normal person, well, of course, I wasn't a normal person, but any normal person would have been scared out of their wits and... uh, wouldn't have touched a drink for months or years after that kind of warning. But I went on doing the very same thing. I just took a lot more care when I came back not to get caught. And I'd been there so long, I knew all the help and all the staff and all the secret places. They'd sneak me off somewhere and fill me full of coffee and put me under a shower and spray me with scent and... And mainly keep me out of sight for a while. <coughs> One day in the winter, in January, Hebo was home with a cold. And I got a message that he wanted to see me at his home. Well, I knew that I'd been drunk the week before, but I didn't know he knew it. And I, that was my immediate thought. He's found out. He knows. And this is going to be my walking papers. So I went down in fear and trembling. He was in bed, hopped up. And lying on the bed was a funny-looking notebook. looked like a notebook with red cardboard covers and wire binding. And uh, put his hand out. He said, this is why I sent for you. And I said, what is it? Well, he said, it's a very extraordinary book, written by a group of people like you, and they seem to have found an answer. And he said, I think it might be your answer, and I want you to take this back and read it. I was so relieved that I wasn't being kicked out. I would have read anything, Sanskrit, if he told me to. So I gathered up the book and off I went and I started to read it. Well, in the beginning, I was thrilled to death by that book. Because it explained for the first time what was wrong with me. You know, I was so tired of being called people like you and various other names that had nothing to do with anything, that when I discovered that I had a disease that had a name, and the name was alcoholism, and that people who had it had a name, and the name was alcoholic, that was the biggest present I'd ever had. I never had any trouble with those words. I was thrilled to have them. And so would other people be if they hadn't had any name for a long, long while and didn't know what they were or who they were. At any rate, so I went on happily with the book and I found in there a definition that I could accept. I'll say this for Dr. Kiba. From the very beginning, he was the first and only one that told me my only answer was not to drink at all. But he couldn't tell me why. 
and I couldn't buy it. And I was scared to death anyway, because I mentioned this one night in the discussion here. My picture of a life without alcohol was a drab gray plain stretching as far as you could see, absolutely flat, not even a rock. And that's what life would be like without alcohol. And I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. That I wouldn't have been able to stand. So I couldn't accept it from him. If he'd been able to give me a logical reason, it might have been better, but he couldn't. There really isn't one yet. But they had a definition in AA that suited me. And I think most of us. They said alcoholism is an obsession of the mind coupled with an allergy of the body. And they used allergy in its popular sense. And I think they even changed it when they put it in print. This was a pre-print copy, monolith copy. They were getting comments from doctors and ministers because they thought that's where they'd get people to work on. And they didn't want anything in that book to offend either psychiatry or the clergy. But then it went on to say that they couldn't do anything about this bodily difference because nobody knew what it was and it seemed to be irreversible. And it meant that that person could never put alcohol in their body safely. The problem was they also had an obsession of the mind about drinking that drove them to drinking even when they didn't want to even when they had decided not to. You know, this made sense. I read that and I thought, well, now I know. Now I know what I've got to cope with. Well, that was dandy. That was quite early in the book, if you remember. I didn't have to go many more pages before my hackles started rising. I began thinking I couldn't stand this book and I certainly wouldn't be able to stand the people who wrote it. Because every other word had a capital letter and it was always the same, G. I never saw God so many times on a page as I saw on those early pages of that book. And I was above that kind of thing. I was an intellectual. I had outgrown God when I was 17. I wasn't going to go back to that. So these poor benighted people who seemed to have found an answer, I decided and so told Dr. Thibault that they were victims of self-hypnosis. The poor things. And it couldn't possibly last... So what was the use of my paying any further attention to it? Well, he said, for my sake, I would like you to continue reading the book. So I read as slowly as I could, just enough to have ammunition for the next time I saw him, to blow down the next few pages. And I found plenty. It isn't the best Britain book in the world. It's 
especially if you're a writer yourself, fussy about things like that. So I quibbled, and I argued, and I dragged my feet, and I threw the book around the room when it made me mad enough. And uh, this went on for nearly two months. I can't remember whether I'd come to the place where it talks about a crisis. I guess I had. But at any rate, what the book calls for happened. It says you must have a crisis. will bring you to your knees before you can really surrender and accept the AA program. It's written right there in the book. I had a crisis. It was not of my own making. It affected my sister, not me, but it couldn't have affected her if I hadn't been where I was. I therefore felt it was all my fault. And there wasn't one single thing I could do about it. Nothing. Except want to kill the guy. And I really did. I really wanted to kill this man. To such an extent that something happened I had never believed was real. I had always believed it was a phrase of rhetoric. You know how you read about how people see red? But they saw red and they got angry. I saw red. Everything had a film of red. And I lay there, just lying on the bed, deciding what I was going to do, that I was going to walk a mile or so into Costco, and I was going to buy two bottles, and I was going to come back and consume both bottles, and then I was going to bust the place up. And hopefully get the guy. He was the manager of the place. So it would immediately disturb him if I did. It's a very interesting thing. It's been to me ever since when I think of it. How we who so many of us consider ourselves intellectuals and intelligent beyond the ordinary. And a lot of alcoholics are. No question about that. But we have a tendency to think of ourselves that way. And, uh, and yet, if we hate somebody so much we want to kill them, and it isn't physically possible to get our hands on him and kill him or her, what do we do? We pick up a hammer and we beat out our own brains. We get a bottle and we get drunk. Who does that hurt? Not the person we want to kill. So much for our sophistication and our intelligence, our intellectual prowess. It doesn't work very well if you're an alcoholic. It doesn't help you out one bit. At any rate, while I stood and thought these things, my eye fell, not by design, just accidentally, on the book which was on my bed open. I don't know why that was the magic key. 
We cannot live with anger. And the next thing I knew, I was on my knees beside that bed. There was a large, wet spot. I'd obviously been there quite a while. Certainly I'd been crying. I think I'd also been praying, although I'm sure I'd forgotten how to pray. First meeting I went to, when they said the Lord's Prayer, I couldn't go beyond the first phrase. I'd forgotten. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I hadn't boned up on that before I got there. Think about it. I didn't know that's how they finished the meeting. Back then. But I lifted my head and I could see out the window and everything looked different. The sky was bluer and the green was greener. And I knew I could walk out that window and keep right on walking. I was free. The words in which it came into my mind. You're free. You're utterly, absolutely, completely free. There was a presence in that room. More than that I can't say because there's no way you can describe a sensation like that, really. But it's as close as I can come. And then I thought to myself, so you think you can walk out a third-story window and keep walking, huh? Well, now you really are nuts. Now you better get down and see Dr. Kibo quick. So I bolted down the stairs. His office was on the ground floor of that same building. And beat on his door, and he opened it and took one look at me, and he said, come in and tell me what happened. Put a patient out the other door. And I told him, and he asked me many questions. And I said, now am I crazy? He said, no, I don't think so. He said, I, in my opinion, you've had an authentic spiritual experience. And if the idea frightens you, you get William James' varieties of religious experience and read it. You'll find many accounts very similar to what you've just told me. This is something that happens to some people. And he said, in my mind, the lucky ones, Marty. Because Harry Tebow was a deeply religious man, and I think he would have loved to have a spiritual experience. And not everybody has them. <clears throat> in fact, as time went on, so few people had them in AA that we had to change the words. The original 12th step read, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. But after a couple of years, when we started the new printing, we changed it to spiritual awakening because the same thing seemed to be happening to people, but not all at once in the great burst. Little by little, and every day changes. Well, so I believed. You might have thought I was anxious to get in and meet these people. Not at all. I was scared to death of these people. I pictured them as a bunch of praying mantises. <laughs> I also thought they were all Bowery bums. And they'd come up from the Bowery from one of those missions and they'd pray over me, naturally. <clears throat> no. 
and I didn't like that idea at all. So I managed to put off for another month. <coughs> this all began in January, and I didn't get to that meeting till April. And then Tebow put his foot down. He said, you're taking the such and such train, and here's a card, and this is the address you're going to, and they're expecting you, and they will take you to a meeting. And so I went. I never was so startled. The kind of, to begin with, the apartment was on Sutton Place. <coughs> that made me feel a little better. <laughs> In the second place, the man of the house, Popsy Marr, was a perfect Virginia gentleman, absolutely true to type. And in the third place, they had gotten a man for me, who was the handsomest creature I had ever seen. A black Irishman, black curly hair and blue eyes. And they acted as if this was just a nice, normal little dinner party. And we had a very pleasant time. They didn't bring up any unpleasant subjects or anything to scare me. But after dinner, they said, well, now we're going to Brooklyn. And we go on the subway. So we got on the subway and we went to Brooklyn. And on the subway, a couple of people came up and joined us who were going the same place with everything they owned in paper bags. They had that kind, too. They lived in the Mills Hotel. I've never heard of that. I think it still exists. And we went to the meeting. And we went in this perfectly pleasant brownstone house. Very attractive. And it looked to me like hundreds of people in there. <coughs> I've never seen so many people. And I took one look and I rushed upstairs. But they were going to leave the coats. And I didn't come down. I wasn't going to come down. I just couldn't face it. I looked back later and I realized that that had been the thing all along. My very first drink. I had to have just in order to have an ordinary date or go to a party. And how could I face anything as important as this without a drink? But a very, very nice woman came up. And she came over and she put her arms around me and she said, you know, we're waiting for you. She said, we've been waiting for you for a very long time. Everyone wants you. So come on downstairs. Her name was Lois. And I've always felt ever since that Lois Wilson was as much my sponsor as Bill was. Because those two people took me under their wing. And they had to, because there were an awful lot of men in that group that did not believe that women were alcoholics. They didn't believe there was any place for women in AA. And they certainly didn't think I was. They didn't think I looked like one. Remember, I'd been hospitalized for almost two years by then. I looked pretty healthy. And another thing was, they thought I was too young. And I was far the youngest in the room. They told me, one of them said, well, you can't possibly have suffered enough. I said, oh, I just doubled up. I telescoped it, which is true. But I had my troubles in the beginning with the skepticism 
of the men. And then I made very good friends with others. But I was the only woman for almost a year. And it was lonely. I could see Lois and talk to her, and Lois was pretty close to being an alcoholic. She'd lived with one for so long. But she really wasn't one. There had been one woman ahead of me whose story was in that original book I read. But she was a very sick woman, and she had a bad slip right after I came in and never came out of it. She died. So the one person, and anyway, she lived in Washington. She didn't live in New York. So there wasn't anybody but the dozens and dozens and dozens that I tried to get into AA with absolutely no luck at all. And the men began to think and say that I was a freak. They'd been right all along. It wasn't for them. You had to be a freak, if you were a woman, to get into AA, to become an alcoholic and belong to AA. Well, fortunately, a second came along, and then a third. And we started to move, and we started to grow. And that's the beginning. And I have talked far longer than I intended. I'm I'm tired now, anyway. I'm going to sit down, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.